Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Really excited to help you learn God's Word here at Mark Driscoll Ministries. We like to help people learn God's Word and we like to help leaders teach God's Word. And we've got a lot of new resources for you, all free, through the great book of 1 John in a series titled, The Father Heart of God. John was Jesus' nearest and dearest, closest and most faithful, best friend, and as an elderly man, the last living disciple of Jesus, he writes this amazing letter, and in his words, we hear the Father heart of God. I had the opportunity to teach this book in 13 weeks as a Bible study for the core launch team of the Trinity Church that I'm having the honor of planting in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I wanted you to learn God's Word, and so we've also provided for you about a 20,000 word study guide. This will help you study it personally with your family and or a small group. And for those of you who really like to go deep, we've got a free 240,000 word research brief that was put together by a team of scholars and professors and we'll give it all to you for free at markdriscoll.org. Go ahead and sign up and any gift that you give will help us to give more Bible teaching away. Thanks for the help. Father God, thank you so much for an opportunity to teach at the Bible study today, to finish our great study of the great book of 1 John. And Lord, right now, we just remind ourselves that, that John is in your presence, that right now he's hanging out with the Lord Jesus, that his faith is sight, that all his questions are answered and all of his hurts are healed and, 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 and all of his longings are fulfilled. And, and Lord, thank you that one day through Jesus, we can, we can be with John and we can be with Jesus. And so as we ponder this concept, this tremendous concept of eternal life, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to take the scriptures which you have written and apply them to our lives for eternal benefit to God's glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we conclude, uh, First John, how many of you find goodbyes difficult? Sometimes it's hard to know how to say goodbye. You're sending your kids off to school. You're sending your spouse off to war. You're sending someone off for an extended trip. Uh, today, John is going to say goodbye. This is the end of 1 John. This is sort of his, his farewell, his goodbye. And, and these can be awkward, and these can be difficult, and these can be hard. I can still remember, uh, we have five kids. Ashley's our oldest. When we took her to kindergarten, she's like, bye. And I had a nervous breakdown. Okay, she was fine, I was not. We sent all of our kids to school and every year Grace and I would say, well, at least we've still got a baby at home until the baby went to school. Our fifth, Gideon, started kindergarten. We dropped off all the other four kids. We drop off Gideon, he bye, goes into kindergarten. Grace and I went to the car. We said our final goodbyes as the kids all started school. We sat in the car, I kid you not, we looked at each other and cried for 15 minutes. <laughs> Complete, mutual, simultaneous nervous breakdown. Right? Because sometimes saying goodbye is hard and knowing how to say goodbye can be very emotional and difficult. And, and that's where we find ourselves today at the end of 1 John. These are John's concluding thoughts. And he has some things that he wants us to know about the Father heart of God. And I want you to understand what God wants. Okay? And it might surprise you. The first thing that God wants is God wants to be with you forever. We've got a few engaged couples in the room. What you're saying is, I wanna be with you for the rest of my life and into eternity. Many of our relationships, they ebb and flow, they come and go. God wants to be with you forever. That's, 
That's what he says. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have what kind of life? Eternal life. Eternal life is life with God forever. How many people in your life you don't want to be with them? God wants to be with you forever. That's, that's amazing. That's my heart toward my five kids. I love my five kids with, with all my heart. I want to be with my kids. God's got a father's heart. If you're one of his kids, he wants to be with you and he wants to be with you forever. That's amazing. And when it speaks of eternal life, eternal life is a quality of life and it's a duration of life. We tend to think of eternal life as a duration of life. And I've told you this before, but we'll say, well, if you meet Jesus, then you'll go to heaven when you die. Well, that's the duration. The truth is heaven comes to you when you meet Jesus. You don't just go to heaven when you die. That the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, that he connects you to the person and work of Jesus who reconciles you to the Father. Now the eternal life of God takes up residence in your life, begins to transform you from the inside out, and you become more and more like Jesus. This will be controversial. I do believe when we die that we go to heaven or hell. I believe that the Bible is exceedingly clear on this. But having been a Christian now for 26 years, I would be a Christian even if there wasn't a heaven. Because what Jesus has done in my life on this earth is absolutely wonderful. If somebody told me, you'll still just die and cease to exist, then I'd wanna walk with Jesus for this life because Jesus makes this life so much better. If someone said, well, you're still gonna die and go to hell, which I'm not, I don't worry about that. But I would say, well, then I still wanna walk with Jesus in this life because Jesus makes this life so much better. Jesus has made me a different man and he's still got a lot of work to do. Jesus has made me a more loving husband and a more devoted father and a better friend. And Jesus has done an incredible thing to, to make me more like him and less like me. And there's still a lot of work for Jesus to do, but just the little progress that he has made is absolutely amazing and I'm eternally grateful. So I want you to see that life with Jesus doesn't begin the moment you die, it begins the moment you meet Jesus. And that the eternal life doesn't just begin the moment you die, it begins the moment you meet Jesus. And Jesus radically transforms life and that relationship with him, it endures forever. That's what that concept of eternal means. And so it's not just a duration of life, it's a quality of life. And for those of you who are non-Christians, peering over the fence, wondering, is Jesus worth it? Everyone who belongs to Jesus would testify equally and simultaneously, absolutely. Jesus is wonderful and he changes people's lives and he alters people's destinies. And so this issue here is eternal life. That's life with God, life in God, life through God. And the question is, how do you receive eternal life? And what he says is, believe in the name of the Son of God. What he's saying is, believe in, trust in, hope, cling to Jesus. Many people believe in heaven and they don't believe in Jesus. And for us who understand the Bible, 
when the Bible speaks of heaven, eternal life, Jesus, it's all speaking about the same thing. Because heaven is eternal life with Jesus. Heaven is not just a place, it's being with a person. How many of you have someone that you love? You love to be with. This is your spouse. This is your grandkid. This is your newborn baby. This is your best friend. And where you are with them matters, but what is more important is being with them. Amen? It's the relationship. It's, it's their presence. Uh, when Grace and I were first married, we would spend a lot of time at the laundromat because the little place we were renting as college students, it didn't have a washer and a dryer. I have never been to the laundromat since. Happy to testify. Uh, and I never would have went to the laundromat, but I would go to the laundromat because Grace was at the laundromat. And if Grace is at the laundromat, then it's a wonderful place for me to be. Once Grace was no longer at the laundromat, I too was no longer at the laundromat. The point is, it is more about who you're with sometimes than where you are. Because you can be in a wonderful, glorious place, but if you're not with the people you love, it's not the best place to be. You can be in a simple place, and if you're with the people who love you, it's the best place to be. Here's the good news about eternal life with Jesus. The people and the place are equally wonderful. You get to be with Jesus. That's amazing. You get to be with all of Jesus' people. It's like a big family reunion. That's amazing. Oh, and by the way, you get to be in God's eternal kingdom where he provides for all of our needs. It's a great homecoming is what it is. But I want you to think of the kingdom of God, eternal life in heaven, not just in terms of place, but in terms of people, beginning with Jesus. And so the question is, do you believe in Jesus? Is he your God? Is he your savior? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you belong to him? If so, you have eternal life. If not, you do not have eternal life. And it all comes down to Jesus. It's ultimately all about Jesus. And so for any of you who would desire eternal life, you need to believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he is God become a man to live without sin, to live the life that we have not lived, the perfect life, to die the death we should die, and that he rose to conquer enemies of Satan's sin, death and hell, to reconcile us to God and to give us the gift of eternal life. And it begins the moment you meet Jesus and it continues forever. And upon death, you close your eyes and then you open them to see Jesus in all of his glory and his kingdom. And you're with God and his people in joy forever. God wants to be with you forever. That's amazing. Number two, God wants to hear from you. How many of you have a hard time getting a hold of important people? We were on vacation here not long ago and uh, we were having a problem with our vehicle. So I called the mechanic. The mechanic said, uh, it'll take up to three weeks. What? Are you that important that I need to wait three weeks to give you money? It took me three weeks and I said, well, we got a vacation that's not that long. We can't get the car in. They said, sorry, there's a line, we're busy. You're at the end of it, we can't squeeze you. And I called another mechanic, same thing. Never did get the car in, just rode this car by faith, I guess. And it ran really rough. It's hard to get a hold of people. People are busy. Some people have a lot of responsibilities. Some people, they don't make you a priority. And God wants to hear from you. 
you know what, there are many times that my phone rings and I don't answer it, but there's never a time that one of my children walks up to me and I don't respond. Because my children are a priority. My children are a priority. If you're one of God's children, you're a priority. Your dad's ears are always open. He's always wanting to hear from you. Here's what he says. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence. How many of you lack confidence in prayer? Talking to God. You're like, I don't know if he's going to hear me. I don't know if he cares. I don't know if this is a big deal to him. I don't know if I'm a burden to him. I don't know if the line's busy. I don't know if somebody else is calling. I, you know, I don't, maybe, he, maybe, he's, maybe he's mad at me and he doesn't want to hear from me. You have confidence. Your dad loves you. He wants to hear from you. He's going to talk about prayer. The confidence that we have toward him, this is in God's presence. What he's going to talk about here is prayer. And prayer is literally reminding ourselves that we live in the presence of God and he's always available to hear us. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's important. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Here's what he's talking about is prayer. In prayer, he says it's two things. It's confidence and it's conversation. Confidence is God hears your prayers. You need to know that. You need to know that. And I would submit to you that at no time in my life have I seen God more quickly answer very specific prayers than in the planting of the Trinity Church. I mean, the guys would tell you, we were talking about yesterday, they said, it's now become like a joke in a funny, hilarious, rejoicing, that's amazing, can you believe it way? We will literally pray and literally the phone rings or somebody walks in the door. Literally, just yesterday in this room, Pastor Andy's like, I gotta hook up the network. I don't know how to hook up the network. Literally a guy walks in, he's like, Kai, I'm here to serve. I hook up networks. Okay. <laughs> Welcome, <laughs> right? I mean, we have, we have prayed for specific things and literally it's like God is sending the answer before we've sent the request. Confidence and prayer is conversation. Prayer is where we talk to God and we listen to God, just like you would with your dad. You go to your dad, I wanna to talk to you. Dad says, well, I got some things to talk to you about. It's conversation, that's what prayer is. If you struggle with prayer, don't think in more religious, formal, rote terms. Think in terms of a child speaking to their dad. How many of you, you've, you've got little kids and the kids can walk right up to mom or dad to either parent and they don't need to be very formal. They don't need to be precise. They don't need to get it all right. They, they don't need to go through some formality. They just walk right up. You can always tell when a child is talking to their parent by just observing, the kid just walks right up. See, if they're gonna ask something of a stranger or someone that they're not close to, what the child will do, they'll stand back because they're not confident. They're not gonna just sort of walk up and then they'll wait for eye contact and then they'll be invited in and then they'll, okay, so-and-so, can I have a sucker, a treat, a lollipop, whatever the case, they make the request, please. You could tell it's a child and a parent relationship when the kid just walks right up and the parents are doing something and they just literally, hey, <laughs> like, they're in the middle of something. And the kids are like, it doesn't matter, that's my parent and I have a request and whatever they're doing, it's now not a priority. How many of your kids are like that? They just know, you're my parent, I have a request. That's confidence. 
Kids just walk right up to their parents and they don't think too much about it. God's your father, you're his kids. You can have confidence, just go to him in prayer. And it's conversation. And when we pray, I need you to know that God hears us in whatever we ask. God hears all your requests and he gives one of three answers, just like a parent would to a child. Your child asks for something, they're gonna get one of three answers. Yes, no, later. Right? That's how you answer your kids, right? Dad, can I have a cat of Mountain Dew? No, you're six months old. No, no, we're not doing that, <laughs> right? Dad, can I have a glass of water? Yes. It's bedtime, Dad, can I have a huge glass of water? No, later, drink that tomorrow, right? Yes, no, and later is how parents answer the requests of children. God's a father, hears and answers all requests, says yes, says no, says later. The question is, how do you get God to say yes? He tells us, if we ask anything, what's the line? According to his will. Here, let me tell you a secret about prayer. I didn't know this as a new Christian. God saved me at 19. And I thought prayer is where you tell things to God that he didn't know and tell him to do things that he didn't want to do. That's what I thought. And I thought prayer isn't working. He's not doing the things that I'm telling him to do. I realized, oh, he's probably in charge. Maybe prayer is not just me telling God what to do. In prayer, we do not give God our will. In prayer, we receive God's will. See the difference? What happens in prayer is that we bring our request to God and through conversation with God, we come to know what God's will is. Jesus taught this, John is echoing this. In John chapter six, verse 10, Jesus taught us to pray, your father, your will be done. Okay. Jesus said it this way in John 14, 13 and 14, whatever you ask in my name, that's similar to according to my will, this I will do that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I will do it. So let me say this about prayer. We do not pray to change God's will. We pray to discover God's will. Does that make sense? We do not pray to change God's will. We pray to discover God's will. Assuming that God's a loving father and his will is not only good, it's best for us. It's best for us. That's why prayer is not just giving God orders. It's a conversation with God where God then says, well, why are you asking for that? Do you really want that? Is that really a good thing? And then God, through the Holy Spirit in us in prayer, he brings our motives and our fears and our heart to light. And at the end we say, actually, yeah, that's not a good thing. I, I, I don't want that. That's not right. I thought that's what I wanted, but actually, as we talk about it, dad, I realized that was not a good request and thank you for correcting my desires. Now I know what is best for me. Okay, and I want you to see in this, because we're gonna be a church that has a lot of kids, Lord willing, and we love kids. I want you to see God as a father and I want that to inform our parenting. And the way that God parents us, I want us to parent our kids. So you need to have a relationship with your kids where they're confident to approach you and give you their request. And then you talk with them because sometimes what they're asking for is actually not good for them, amen? And as a parent, you say, I love you. Let's talk about this. Let's look at this. Let's examine this. Same for grandparents. And then the kid goes, oh, okay. Now my desires have shifted and what I want has changed because now I understand that what I was wanting was actually not what I was needing. 
And that's what it means to pray according to God's will. Prayer is where we discover God's will. And when we know God's will, then we ask God's will. And God always says yes to that, which is his will. So then the question becomes, how do you know you're praying in the will of God? And let me say this, my view of God is that the will of God is not a tightrope, right? A tightrope is, it's very narrow, it's very precarious, and at any point you could fall off. My view of God's will is more like a highway. It's a direction. It's going toward God's glory and the good of others. And that it is something that God wants us to know is his will. And he wants us to walk in his will. And he wants us to progress in his will with confidence. Three ways you can know you're in God's will. Number one, take your request that you would give to God and check it by scripture. This is the revealed word of God. We test everything by this. This is the metaphorical supreme court by which all things are tested. And if you say, I wanna ask something of the Lord or I have a desire, the question is, well, is that in accordance with his word? So if you say, well, I'm dating this non-Christian guy and I wanna marry him. What do you think, Lord? He's like, I already answered that. The, the answer has already been given. You don't need to ask me. The answer is no. God, I wanna love my spouse better. The answer is, yeah. It's already right there. God said, husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. If you pray that prayer every time, God says, absolutely. You want to love your spouse more and you're asking me to help you? The answer is yes. You want to learn the scriptures? The answer is yes. You want to overcome that sin in your life and make progress? The answer is yes. You're praying in my will. And most of God's will is found in the scriptures. Number two, the other way we discover God's will in prayer is through wise counsel. If you look at the governance structure of the church, there's a group of people we call wise counsel. There are people that are pastors to Grace and I, people that we know, love, trust. They're older, more seasoned, experienced. They're in the grandparenting season of life. And so some of those people um, are really helpful. All of those people, I should say, are really helpful. And what I meant to say was, in addition to those people, there are other people that are not listed that we would consider wise counsel that we'll call and we'll just ask because we need their help and we need their input and we need their, their wise counsel. The Holy Spirit resides in people and some people have particular insight and wisdom, maybe in business or family or marriage or ministry or church. And what you do, you're saying, man, I think this is God's will. Maybe this is God's direction for my life. This is what I've been seeking the Lord for. This is what I've been asking the Lord for, but I'm not sure. You know, the Bible does give me some indication, but I'm not entirely clear. Go to wise, godly people for counsel and say, what do you think? Speak into this. Give me your perspective. Don't just pick people who agree with you. Pick people who just want the best for you and God's will for you. Check it by scripture, check it by wise counsel. And then number three, the person and work of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you're a Christian, he will lead you, he will guide you, he will convict you, he will instruct you. And as you grow in a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit, there will be certain things you'll just talk to the Lord about and you'll just say, no, God's already really sort of moved in my heart and I know that's not what he wants for me or no, God's really moved in my heart and I know that this is what he wants for me. And it's getting that time with the Lord to examine our desires and our intent and the motive of our request. Number one, God wants to be with you forever. And number two, starting the moment you met Jesus, God wants to hear from you. Number three, 
God wants to help the people you care about. How many of you have somebody right now that you care about and you're worried about them? You're worried about them. You're like, gosh, the choices they're making, the life that they're living is very concerning. You carry a burden for them. You're heartbroken for them. You're, you're worried about them. This is a wayward child, right? This is a marriage of a friend of yours that's fracturing and, and difficulty. This is somebody who's sick or unemployed or people are undergoing crisis or tragedy or, or trouble or strife. And we have a burden for them. What do we do with them? And how do we, how do we bring them to the Lord? And this is the question of intercession. He says, 1 John 5, 16 and 17. Because here's what I want you to see. God not only cares about you, he also cares about the people that you care about. And he not only wants to help you, he wants to help the people that you know need help. Um, if anyone sees his brother, that's a Christian, committing a sin, not leading to death. Okay, sees. So no room for rumor, amen? It's like I heard from so-and-so who talked to so-and-so who talked to so-and-so that so-and-so did such and such. You didn't see it, right? What we're talking about here is someone you know and something you know is happening. Not rumor, not gossip, not speculation, confirmation. If you see your brother, Christian, committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, that's prayer, that's intercession. So we could pray for ourselves and we also pray for others. That's called intercession. Um, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, uh, there is sin that leads to death. And I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, this is, you ever had a really bad knot in your shoe and you're like, golly, okay. For theologians, this is a knot that they're all trying to untie, okay? It's a complicated, difficult verse because 2,000 years ago, I believe there was something categorically called the sin that leads to death that they knew what it was. And now 2,000 years later, we're not exactly sure what that was. How many of you ever watched a movie or a television show from another country? You ever watched them? And then all of a sudden everybody's laughing. You're like, I don't know. I'm laughing because they're talking about something and we don't know exactly what they're talking about. Um, all scripture is equally true. Not all scripture is equally clear. There are certain things that made a lot of sense to them. And 2000 years later, we're like, hmm, I'm not exactly sure what that phrase meant. This phrase, sin that leads to death, it's one of those. So we'll keep it in the open hand, not the closed hand. But let me give you the options. Let me first explain sin. Sin includes, and if you don't know what sin is, it's important to know, sin includes our thoughts. God knows your thoughts. It includes our words. It includes our deeds. And it includes our motives. God sees and knows all. So sin includes thought, word, deed, and motive. Sin is in two categories. It's commission, we do a bad thing. Omission, we don't do something that we were supposed to do. I remember many years ago, uh, there was a young woman who got in a really bad relationship with a really bad guy who did some really bad things. And I met with her and her dad, and she was really frustrated with her dad because he didn't protect her, he didn't guard her, he didn't, didn't love her in a practical way. And he, he looked at his daughter and he said, I don't know why you're angry, I didn't do anything. And I looked at him, I said, that's why she's angry. That's why she's angry, because you didn't do anything. That's omission. There are sins of commission where we do something we shouldn't do. There are sins of omission where we don't do the things that we should have done. Um, sin is something that we have as a condition and an action. 
We sin by nature. We're conceived sinners as descendants of Adam. And actions, we do things that are sinful out of our sinful nature. Okay, so, so when the Bible speaks of sin, it's speaking of a condition out of which we all live and need deliverance from. And here's what's key here at the Trinity Church. We don't believe in moral transformation. We believe in supernatural salvation. Moral transformation is trying to make evil people better. Supernatural transformation is God making people new. Not a better version of themselves, a new version of themselves. And so we're not just trying to see people make moral progress. We want people to meet God and change at the level of their nature so that a good tree bears good fruit and out of the new nature comes a new lifestyle, okay? So Christianity is not self-help, it's God help. That's what it is. So when he's talking about sin, that's what he's talking about. He talks about one kind of sin, the sin that leads to death. Well, if you're raised Catholic, um, they'll talk about mortal and venial sins, Right? Big sins and little sins. And they'll say, well, the sin that leads to death, maybe that's the really big sin. Um, some would say that he's talking about deliberate versus unintentional sin. Right? Murder, intentional. You know, but you can accidentally kill someone. Right? That's unintentional. It was not intended. Maybe he's talking about intentional versus unintentional. Third category, some would call it apostasy. This is where someone professes to be a Christian and then they walk away from God and never return. But I would say that that's not a brother. That's a brother, someone who keeps walking with the Lord. Some would say it's also what Jesus spoke about, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to get into all that. But what that is, is that's looking at all that Jesus did and saying he did it by the power of Satan. Jesus was powerful, but he was wrong. He was evil. He was demonic. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's taking all of the work of the Holy Spirit and attributing it in the life of Jesus to Satan and demons. And some would say maybe they're talking about the same thing here in the sin that leads to death. Number five, some would say it's an ongoing rejection of Jesus, but that one seems weak because again, the persons that they're speaking of are called brothers or fellow Christians. Some would say it refers to physical versus spiritual death. How many of you were in the military? Right? Military, right, God bless you. There is what kind of discharge? There's two kinds, right? There's honorable and dishonorable. Sometimes God dishonorably discharges a Christian, meaning they are a Christian, but they're living in sin and God takes them home. God does this with two people in Acts 5 called Ananias and Sapphira. They say, we're gonna give this money. They sell this land. Apparently, maybe they get a better deal than they were thinking. They're like, well, it's a lot more than we we're anticipating. And then they go and they give their offering and they don't give everything that they pledge. So then they die and God takes them home. Dishonorable discharge. In a book called Corinthians in the New Testament, they're coming forward for communion, which remembers the broken body and shed blood of Jesus for our sin. And they're continuing in all kinds of sin. And so some of them die. So they would say, some sins God lets you live a long time for and he works on. Other sins, it leads to physical death. And that's what he's talking about. Kind of a dishonorable discharge. Uh, number seven, maybe it was a group in that day who walked away from the real Christianity. They started the equivalent of a cult. And as a result, they're leading people astray. And that's the sin that leads to death, that they've lied about Jesus and they're leading people astray and they're false teachers and they've started a cult. Or eight, he may be speaking of the sin of a believer versus an unbeliever. 
that a, a Christian doesn't commit a sin that leads to spiritual death, eternal separation from God. Non-Christian, their lifestyle is one of sin and rebellion and folly that leads to eternal death and separation from God. We can argue this all day. Here's the point I really wanna focus on, the intercession piece. I tend to think it refers to someone who is a believer, I tend to think it refers to perhaps spiritual versus physical death. But what you'll find at this church, where the Bible is clear, we're clear. Where the Bible is less clear, we wanna be more humble and allow a little distinction without division so that when we come to God's word, the things that are clear, we're clear about. The things that are less clear, we're more humble about. What I believe is very clear here is if you love somebody and you know them and you know they're a Christian, and they're committing some sin, they're hurting themselves. And here's what you need to know. Alvin Plantinga says that sin is a form of self-abuse. When people sin, they think they're getting away with something. They're not, they're hurting themselves. Do, do you know that? When we sin, we're sinning against God. We're also hurting ourselves. How many of you have someone right now that you love and they're sinning and they're hurting themselves. It's heartbreaking, amen? What he says is when that happens, what you can do, pray. Ask God and God will give him life. It's intercession. We can bring our request to God, we can bring their request to God. And I wrote down some things. I am one of those people that particularly as a young pastor and a, and, a, and a young leader, I felt overly responsible for a lot of people. Okay, okay I'm, let's just be honest. Okay, we won't, we won't put your photo online. Irresponsible, overly responsible. How many of you tend to be a little irresponsible? Okay, okay. And if you didn't even have the energy to put your hand up, that's how irresponsible you are, okay? <laughs> okay. How many of you, you're overly responsible, okay? okay. I, lean, I lean overly responsible. What happens is overly responsible people then take responsibility for irresponsible people, okay? Sometimes the counselors will call this a codependent relationship. These people are irresponsible. They're not doing what they're supposed to. These people are overly responsible and they're trying to save and care for all these people. Well, if you have someone that is being irresponsible, they're sinning, they're hurting themselves, and you feel a burden, a responsibility for them, what do you do? What he says is, you pray for them. Because what they need is God. Now they need your love and prayer and support and intercession, but they actually need God. And let me tell you some things that interceding for others does. Number one, it unburdens you. If there's somebody you love, and it's interesting, I mean, we're small enough, I could see your faces. And some of you, I could see it on your face. You're like, yeah, there's somebody that, ah, oh, I'm really worried about them. I'm maybe even a little frustrated, but I'm concerned. What you have is a burden for their well-being. Interceding for them, praying for them, bringing their request to the Lord, because maybe they're not bringing their request to the Lord. What that does is that helps transfer the burden back to the Lord. You get that? Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, right? and I'll give you rest for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's, it's transferring that burden to the Lord, saying, Lord, I have a burden for this person. 
And I need to bring that burden to you. And I need you to bear that burden for this person. It transfers the burden. For those of you that are overly responsible, you will feel the burden for all kinds of people in your life and you're not built to carry that heavy of a load, amen? You say, well, I still wanna love and care, then pray and intercede and then have the Lord help carry that burden. Number two, interceding for someone, it serves as a lightning rod. How many of you, when you're burdened for someone, you just, at points, you get very frustrated by them. You're like, you did it again. You don't listen. I told you what to do. You didn't do that. You did the opposite. You know what happens. It goes badly. Why do you not listen? They're like, sorry. You can get very frustrated. And what interceding does, it provides a lightning rod. When I was a little boy, I visited my grandma in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and it is flat. And I remember being in her kitchen and lightning struck. And I remember the lightning just crashing down to the earth and lighting up the sky. And apparently that's coming here soon in Phoenix, I am told. And, uh, and I asked my grandma, I was a little kid, I was like, are we going to be okay? She says, yeah, it usually hits a lightning rod. I said, what's a lightning rod, grandma? She says, well, all of that energy hits a lightning rod and then it grounds out the storm. Intercession is a lightning rod. You're frustrated, you're worried, you're anxious. Bring it to the Lord. He's your lightning rod. You intercede for the person. He grounds out a lot of your angst and frustration. Okay? That's the peace that surpasses understanding. Number three, it keeps us active. How many of you, there's somebody you're burdened for and you're just worn out by them. It's been so long. You just, you can't go anymore. You're like, I don't know what to do for you. Well, you don't want to quit or give up. And by interceding and praying, it keeps you active and engaged saying, Lord, I've said everything I could say. I've done everything I can do. I'm now bringing it to you. And I know you're gonna talk to them. And I know if they'll turn to you, you'll walk with them. So Lord, I'm still active and engaged. I still do care, but I'm bringing it to you. Number four, it helps you to verbally process. How many of you are verbal processors? Okay. How many of you, you think out loud? I do. Most of my, not most, a large chunk of everything I teach, I just say it as I think about it. Right? Oftentimes I, I'm thinking, with my mouth open, sometimes that works really well. Sometimes it just doesn't, okay? So how many of you are like me though? You're a verbal processor. And when you start talking about someone or something, you're like, Ugh, well, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said it that way. I shouldn't have said it that loud, okay? What prayer does, it allows us verbal processors to verbal process with the Lord, which keeps us from gossip. You're like, I need to talk to somebody about this. And God is like, talk to me. Right? Don't, don't, don't get a whole bunch of people. Don't send it out digitally. Don't post it on your wall, right? Wall is the Greek word for demon. Don't put it there, right? <laughs> don't do that. Talk to me. Talk to me. And it allows us to verbal, God, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm frustrated. Here's what and you know what? It's a, that's the safe place to verbally process with the Lord, amen? Also intercession, number five, it keeps us from gossip. How many of you, you're burdened, frustrated, concerned about someone, and you're so frustrated by them, you start talking to other people about them? What's going on? Well, they said, they did. Well, how are you? Well, they're driving me crazy. They're talking about your kids, talking about your spouse. And it's, if you're really spiritual, you make it into a prayer request. Well, please pray for my idiot husband who can't keep a job because he can't keep his mouth shut, and pray for the children that are getting skinny because he's continually unemployed. Thank you for praying, right? So sometimes... Sometimes we can gossip and what intercession does, it allows us to talk about someone in the only acceptable way by bringing the need to the only person who can really help, the Lord. 
the Lord. Keeps us from gossip. If you want to talk about somebody, pray for them. Talk with God about them. That's, that, that's what he is encouraging. Uh, number six, it also reduces conflict. If you're burdened by, frustrated by, annoyed by, concerned about someone, and you talk to them about everything that you're frustrated about, the conflict will escalate. If you talk to the Lord first, and then the Lord says, okay, here's a couple things I want you to go talk to them about, you're reducing the list and you're reducing the conflict. Number seven, interceding for people, it invites the Holy Spirit. You know what? I don't have access to your heart. He does. I can't change your heart. He can. I can't make you like Jesus. He will. Praying for someone to say, Holy Spirit, I need you. They need you. We all need you. I welcome you to be at work in them. And number eight, lastly, it's a way to love people. It's a way to love people. I have an older godly man in my life who's a pastor and he calls every week. Hey Mark, checking in. How's Grace? How are the kids? How's the church going? What can my wife and I be praying for? I feel so loved. This person's important. They have things to do. And about once a week they call just to ask You know, how could I intercede? How can I pray? Who can I pray for? What can I pray for? I feel so loved by them because I never feel alone. I know that if I'm struggling with something, they're there, that they're praying for me and my family, and they're praying for our church family. And I know that if I do find myself in a difficult place, that they're a safe place for me to go. Probably shouldn't say this. Okay. The women say, don't. And the men say, let's do it. Okay, so would you agree that today in our culture, there's just a lot of angst, frustration, anger, disappointment, and there's not a lot of prayer? And... And, and what people say and do when they don't pray is not better than prayer. Is that fair? It's, it's not better than prayer. That, that these things need to be brought to the Lord. Not sometimes just to the Lord, but first to the Lord. Okay? And I won't say any more because I, I don't think I did too bad, but I will if I continue. So one more. Uh, the next one, God wants to help you change. How many of you, you're a parent, you're a grandparent, you love your kids, and if they come up to you and say, I need your help, the answer is? Yeah. I want to mature, I want to grow, I want to learn. The answer is? That's why I'm here. Thanks for inviting me in. We know, he's going to use this word a lot, know, confidence, certainty, that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God uh, protects him 
and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the world lies in the power of the evil one. What he's saying is there are people that belong to God and live by his power. There are people that belong to Satan and live by his power and God's people who live by his power, they don't keep on sinning. They live a life that is different from those who do not belong to God. Now, what I wanna say is this, he's given us two guardrails early on in the book. I think it was 1 John in my notes, chapter one, verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, so one guardrail for the Christian is I'm a sinner. No one could say I'm perfect. I've never sinned. I have nothing to apologize for. I have nothing to repent. I have nothing to learn. I have nothing to grow in. Me and Jesus, same resume, right? You can't say that. And over on the other guardrail, he says, but a real Christian doesn't keep on sinning. And so these are the guardrails for the Christian life. You are a sinner and you're changing, okay? You're not perfect, but you're, you're drifting to be more and more and more like Jesus as you walk with him year after year. Now, you'll never get to a point where you say, I've become perfect in this life. But if you really are a Christian, what he's saying is, and it's this keep on sinning, it's this ongoing lifestyle how many of you, since you've met Jesus, if you honestly look at it, just go back and look at your life and you say, I've changed. Now, the closer I get to Jesus, I realize there's a lot of change left to do, but I, I've changed. The things I think, those things have changed. The way I feel, those things have changed. The things I say, those things have changed. The people I used to hate, I love. The things I used to do, I've stopped. The, the people I used to not forgive, I forgive. I've changed. Some of you are windshield Christians. It's always about what's next. Every once in a while, it's good to look in the rearview mirror and see all the progress that God's already made. Okay? Because the progress that God's already made, it gives you hope for the future. Well, if man, if he's already been this faithful and I've changed this much, yeah, there's more work to do, but you know what? We, Jesus has got a little momentum with me. I, th I think we're gonna make it. You can change by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that empowered the life of Jesus. And he sends the Holy Spirit to empower your life so that your life increasingly becomes more and more like his marked by love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, right? self-control, all of the fruit of the Spirit, the, the character of Jesus sort of emanating through the new life and new nature that God gives you. If someone comes to me and they says, I became a Christian here, my next question is always, so tell me what God's done in your life. Tell me what changes happened in your life. And on a few occasions, somebody look at me and literally just say, I can't really think of anything. And I would say, well, then I'm not sure you met Jesus because everybody who meets Jesus changes. Some a little at a time, some a lot at a time, some two steps forward, one step back. Some it's a sprint all the way to the finish line, but it's change and it's progress. My question to you would be, what sins in your life 
has God already helped you to overcome and change? Celebrate those, rejoice in those, remember those. Number two, what other things are presently in your life that the Holy Spirit has brought to your attention, that these are areas that you need to change and learn and grow, and I want you to bring those to God because if you are someone who is born of God, you do not need to keep on sinning. We tend to blame shift, we tend to excuse, we tend to control, we tend to minimize, we tend to manage our sin. And what he says is because Jesus died for our sin, we can put our sin to death and we don't need to keep doing that anymore. And here's why. God has changed who you are. If you're a Christian, he's changed you at the level of nature. And God changes who you are so that with God, you can change what you do. This is amazing. This is amazing. What this means is whatever sin there is in your life, it's not more powerful than the power of God. Amen. It's not more powerful than the powerful power of God and that God's power can help you overcome that sin. And I don't want that to be a condemning word for you. I want that to be a hopeful word for you. And for those of you that have secret sins, you have hidden sins, you have deep struggles, you have bad habits, I want you to know that the power of God is available to take the desires of your new nature through the Holy Spirit and to allow you to walk in victory over those things because you don't need to keep on doing that anymore. Maybe that's who you were, that's not who you are. Maybe that's what you did, that's not what you're going to do forever. And so that's not what you need to be doing right now. Last two, God wants to help you know Jesus. Chapter five, verse 20. We know that the son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we're in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true. true. How many of you have heard? The Bible never clearly says that Jesus is God, that years and years later, Christians made up this fanciful myth, but the Bible never says Jesus is God. Well, Jesus said he was God a lot, which is why they killed him. And then three days later, he came back and said, I told you so. In addition to Jesus saying he was God, the Bible does say that he is God. Let's just look at it right here. Uh, Jesus Christ, he is the true God. You know what that means? There's false gods. And there's also false concepts of Jesus. So eternal life is really the subject for the entirety of 1 John 5. And the issue is, do you belong to the true Jesus? Do you believe in the true Jesus? And God wants you to know the true Jesus. We know that the Son of God has come. He's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Jesus wants you to know him like you would know a friend. And what happens when you know someone, you know them, and then for the rest of your life, you continually get to know them, amen? Okay, some of you are single guys. Let me just pick on the single guys. When I talk to single guys, oftentimes they'll say, I can't get married. I don't wanna be with one woman forever. The issue is you're gonna be learning about that woman forever, amen? <laughs> that is a well with no bottom. You will just like keep exploring. You will never get bored with one woman because there's a lot to learn, amen? Grace and I met at the age of 17. We've been together 28 years. We've been married 24 years. Coming up here on August 15th is our anniversary. I have known her since March 12th, 1988. I've known her. And you know what? I'm still getting to know her. I'm still getting to know her. I'm still getting to know her. You can meet Jesus and for all eternity, you're still getting to know him. It's a relationship. You get to know a person by spending time with them and circumstances and conversation. Oh, I never knew that about you. How many of you have been married 30, 40, 50 years? Raise your hand. You guys have been married a long time. There's a lot of you. Yes, you're in this church. Praise God, we have mature people. Stay, please stay, okay? Um, 
We need you, okay? How many of you have been married 40, 50 years and you've recently learned something about your spouse you didn't even know? That's the way it works. You can walk with Jesus for a long time and there's something you didn't know. And this is where, if you look at Jesus in terms of the fact that he's not a concept, he's a person. He's not dead, he's alive. He's not just a good man, he's the God man. There are people that say things about him that are not true. He wants us to know the things that are true and he wants us to spend time getting to know him better and better and better, which is why I love teaching the Bible and I want you to spend a lot of time in God's word. Last one. Oh boy, okay. This should have been a whole sermon, okay? So this is where I apologize in advance. Um, our air conditioning is not working and I'm sweating like Mike Tyson in a spelling bee. So I apologize for that as well, okay? Number three, I could tell you're hot and it's a little uncomfortable, okay, okay? Number four, we don't have multiple services to where we gotta get started right now. So technically I can go as long as I want. Okay, First John chapter five, verse 21. Here's this whole point that it really boils down to, are you gonna give your life to God or give your life to an idol? Which one is better? And idols are tricky because they lie. They promise things that only God can deliver. So they're deceptive. Here's, here's how he ends it. How many of you would not end your Christmas card this way? <laughs> Had a great year. Johnny went to college. Sally shot a goal in soccer. Tommy learned how to do a backflip. Keep yourself from idols. <laughs> right? It's, a, it's kind of a, it's an odd end. Right? But here's, here, here's, here's why I believe it fits. It sticks out. You're like, well, that's, that, that, that sticks out. When you really want something to be memorable, you save it for the end. Right? This is sort of John, keep yourself from idols. Drops the mic, walks away. Right? You're like, well, that was, that was odd. Well, it's because he wanted to draw our attention to it. This is not an accident. The Bible doesn't make accidents. When, when something's a little off kilter, a little like that's not, it's, it's, it's God's way of saying, you would maybe overlook this. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang that picture a little crooked on the wall. So when you walk by, you look at it. I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's un, unexpected. Little children, okay, here's the key. God's a father, he sees all of us, little kids. How many of you get a little older, you feel like you're kind of smart. God's like, you're still a kid. Right? I was talking to a guy recently, he's in his 80s. He said, I was talking to my kid. I was like, how old's your kid? He's like, 65. <laughs> wow. I said, 65? Yeah, he's retiring. My kid's retiring. Wow. Really? He said, well, he's still a kid to me. How many of you parents, you get that? Right, you get that. God's a father, John has the father's heart. He's between 80 and 100 years of age here. He's looking at people, he's saying, never forget, we're all like kids. Kids need protection, they need provision, they need instruction, they need correction, they need direction. No matter how old you get, God's your father, you still need a parent, we're his kids. But he loves us, he's there for us, he cares for us. Keep yourselves from idols. Now, okay, here we go. Who's supposed to do the keeping? You are. It's not your parents' job to keep you from idols. It's not the police force's job to keep you from idols. It's not the prison system's job to keep you from idols. 
Right? Those are the things that happen when people don't keep themselves from idols. That the fruit of the Spirit is self-control and in a culture of victimization and blame where everyone blames someone else, God wants us to take responsibility for ourselves. Okay? You are the constant variable in your life. I just talked to somebody recently said, well, my parents and then my teachers. And my, I said, okay, all these people have come and gone in your life. There's only one consistent variable, you. The question is, will you take responsibility for your life even if all of these other people have failed you and all of these things are true? It's still your life. You're responsible for it and you will give an account to God for it. It's your life. You need to keep your selves from idols. And if you will do this, it will allow everything that has preceded this in the totality of his entire book to be possible in your life, okay? So let me, let me talk about idolatry uh, rather quickly, okay? Some years ago, I went to India, Vishakapatam, Southeast India, to see a pastor friend of mine who works in church planting. They brought me out to the middle of nowhere. I felt like I was in a National Geographic ad. There are people plowing fields behind oxen. There are women carrying water from wells on their heads. Everybody's living in a thatch hut. I, I felt like I was back 2,000 years in time. They bring me out to the middle of literally nowhere. We're going down this dirt road and I keep passing all of these little huts on the side of the road and they have uh, regional deities that they're attributed to. There's chicken blood and feathers in them. They make sacrifices to their gods and leave fruit and light candles to worship the little idol, the demon that they think rules over that particular piece of land. And I'm like, man, this, where am I? I get to this conference under a thatch roof in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's really hot. And all of these pastors walk in from some hours, days away and I'm talking through a translator, and some of the people there are bilingual. And uh, in one of the breaks, I'm talking to one of the pastor's wives, and uh, I said, she said, is this your first time to India? I said, yeah, it is. She, I, she said, what do you think? I said, wow, it's different, you know? Uh, I said, have you ever been to America? I want to know if she had a frame of reference. She said, yeah. She said, but I'll never go back. I was like, why? She said, I can't stomach the idolatry. I just walked by a lot of dead chickens and <laughs> little f thatch altars and lit candles and, really? She said, uh, she said, our shrines are small, yours are big, they're stadiums. She said, uh, she said, when I went to the stadiums, I thought, this is a, this is a shrine to God's. And people come together and they put on the jersey of their God. And they cheer for their God. And if their God wins, then they rejoice with eating and drinking and celebrating and worshiping and cheering and singing. If their God loses, then they're, they're disappointed and devastated and they want their God to resurrect by winning the next game. So then I saw the movie theaters and they were incredible. She said, those are palaces for gods and goddesses who live on screens that everyone wants to be like. She said, you know, when you walk into someone's home in our culture, on the altar in their 
living room, you will see a little box with a candle to the God of the home. She said, when I walked into the houses in America, their boxes were much bigger and they plugged in. We see idolatry in other cultures more quickly than we do in our own. Amen? So if you walk into another culture, you're like, do you guys not see this? And they walk into our culture, they're like, do you not see this? John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory, that we produce idols all the time. And here's what idolatry is. It's worshiping someone or something other than God. It's someone or something other than God being at the center of your life. This can be a created thing or a concept of God that is created by man, and it's not the real true God. Hang with me. This is important. Um, Worship starts with God. The God of the Bible is Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They live in constant, perfect union and communion. They love one another. They rejoice in one another. They celebrate one another. They serve one another. They care for one another. God is in himself a worshiping being. There's a great mystery there. God made us in his image and likeness to worship him. And idolatry is when we worship someone or something other than God. It's our worship misdirected and it needs to be redirected. So if if, 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 the questions would be, perhaps Andy, just jump all the way to the questions at the end, if you would, please. Who or what do you love the most? If it's not God, it's an idol. It's worshiping a created thing rather than the creator God. And here's what idols tend to be. Good things that become God things and that makes them bad things. Okay, I love my wife. But if I don't love God first and most, I will put my wife in the place of God and then she will fail and disappoint me. And then I will idolize her and I will demonize her. And this is what we do. We idolize and we demonize. We put someone or something in God's place. It fails us, they fail us or disappoint us. And then we tear them down and we destroy them. We idolize and demonize. That's what we do. This happens in our culture all the time with celebrities, politicians, all kinds of things. Idolize, idolize, idolize. You will save us. You will deliver us. You will protect us. You will provide for us. You will comfort us. You will not fail us. You failed us. You are no longer idolized. You're demonized. Down you come. We destroy you. Okay? An idol is often a good thing in God's place, which makes it a bad thing. Who or what do you love the most? If the answer is anyone other than the God of the Bible, there's a real problem. That's why God says to seek ye first the kingdom of God, to to love God and then love neighbor. It's all God first. Number two, who or what do you fear? What are you afraid of? Who are you afraid of? Some of us, we make decisions in our life because there's a person or a circumstance that we fear so much that we make all of our decisions to avoid whatever we believe that pain might cause us. Some of you, when you make a decision, you're not asking, Lord, what is your will? What you're looking at is somebody that you think might hurt you and you see them like a grenade with a pin pulled. And so all of a sudden, you're no longer looking at God, you're looking at them and you're making your decisions based upon how you might control them and the outcome of the circumstances because you're afraid of what might happen and you've totally lost sight of God. That's fear of man and it's idolatry. It's taking someone or something and putting them at the center of your life so that all of your decision-making orbits around them. That's not good. Does this make sense? 
Number three, do you have a functional savior? A savior is I have a concept of hell, I have a concept of heaven, and my functional savior will get me to my heaven. Every magazine cover is someone's heaven. Okay, next time you're at the store, look at all the magazines. Those are various advertisements for various kinds of functional heavens. Clean house, obedient pet, nice kids, abs, nice car, <laughs> renovated home, heaven. If I could just live there, oh, heaven. How do I get there? Functional savior. Open up the magazine, buy these products, take these steps, do these things, and then you will get to live in your heaven. How many of you have tried that and heaven never comes? Okay. We need to live for the real heaven, not the counterfeit heaven, the one that God makes, not the ones that we make. Functional savior is, let me give you an example. I'll pick on single people again, because I love you. Some of you are single and your hell is being single and your heaven is being married. So a boyfriend or girlfriend, savior. Savior. You've saved, me from, you've saved me from singleness. And, and, and that boyfriend or girlfriend would tell you they, they don't want to be savior. That's too much to ask. Who or what do you make sacrifices for? When there's idols, we make sacrifices. What do you give your time to? I talked to a guy recently. He's in the middle of a divorce. And I literally looked at him, I said, how much time do you spend with your wife? He gave me the hours. I said, how much time do you spend golfing? He gave me the hours. There was way more hours golfing than with his wife. I said, you're getting divorced? He said, yeah. I said, why don't you quit golfing? He said, nah. Hmm, you're making a sacrifice of your marriage for your golf score. Is golfing a sin, yes or no? No. But when it becomes the center of your life and all of a sudden it becomes the priority in your life and people and things that are supposed to be the priority in your life are now pushed to the margins, you've taken a good thing, you've made it a God thing, now it's a bad thing. What do you make sacrifice? Where does your money go? Last one, what is the heaven you are pursuing? Is all of your effort, all of your striving, all of your weeping and crying and spending and laboring and trying to just get heaven on earth, to get to a place where we're at peace, we're blessed, everything's okay, everything's calmed down, finally we're in heaven. It's not coming in this life. It's the peace of God comes to us and then it sort of delivers us ultimately, eternally into the presence of God where we enjoy the peace of God. But we need to accept and acknowledge the fact that, that heaven is not here. It's, it's in us through the Holy Spirit and it's coming for us with the second coming of Jesus. But there needs to be some patience. There needs to be some realism. There needs to be some humility. There needs to be some longevity. These things that our culture just quite frankly doesn't understand and doesn't encourage and, and doesn't celebrate. And what he's saying is that if you take anyone or anything other than the God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you say, that's the center of my life, that's who I live for. That's what I live for. That's what matters to me most. That's where my time, energy, money goes. That's who I am. And if I get that heaven, then I'm happy. And if not, then I'm devastated. And what John is saying, keep yourself from idols. Here's how you keep yourself from idols. Worship Jesus. If you're worshiping Jesus, you won't worship sex. If you're worshiping Jesus, you won't worship money. If you're worshiping Jesus, you won't worship power. 
If you're worshiping Jesus, you won't worship winning. If you're worshiping Jesus, you won't worship your spouse. If you're worshiping Jesus, you won't worship your kids. If you're worshiping Jesus, you won't worship your health. If you're worshiping Jesus, you won't worship your grade point average. If you're worshiping Jesus, you won't worship your home. You won't worship your income. You won't worship your lifestyle. You won't worship anyone or anything. And here's the freedom. You can enjoy the things that God gives you and you can love the people that you know without using them to be your idol. And it frees you up to live a life with and for and through Jesus. And I think this all goes together. I think that when he says eternal life, keep yourself from idols, what he's saying is that eternal perspective and experience of life is totally rendered impossible for those who are simultaneously pursuing idols. And I didn't mean to say this, and I will close with this. Okay, I'm your pastor. I love you. Okay, listen. Jesus doesn't exist to give you your idols. Jesus doesn't exist to give you your idols. Do you get that? Sometimes in Christianity, you want to be rich? Go to Jesus. You want to be healthy? Go to Jesus. You want to be a winner? Go to Jesus. Jesus doesn't exist to give you your idols. Jesus exists to be your object of worship and to deliver you from your idols. Amen? Amen. Father, I love teaching and I love these people and I love your word and I've gone long and I've said a lot. And Lord, it's a great book and we can never plumb the depths of your word. I thank you for the grace of these people to allow me to teach in a small intimate Bible study format, the book of 1 John. Lord, I'd not taught through a book of the Bible in maybe a year and a half. and I was rusty and needed to find my sea legs. And these people were gracious to endure my stumbling and figuring out uh, how to teach your word uh, more faithfully. Lord, I thank you for the uh, Trinity Church and the opportunity that you've set before us and the, the place that you've given us and the people that you've provided for us and the resources that you've entrusted to us. Lord, our statement is we open our Bibles to learn. Thank you that we get to do that and that we open our lives to love. Help us to do that. Lord, I pray for my friends here, any that don't know you, that they would experience the eternal life of Jesus. Lord, for those of us who have been pursuing idols and find it's a lie and it's misery, please deliver us so that we could worship Jesus. And Lord Jesus, if any of us have been worshiping you in hopes that you'll give us our idols, Please deliver us from that. Let us be satisfied in you. Let us be gratified for you. Let us know that the eternal life is something that we experience now. It's like bud form, but it'll blossom upon your coming, Lord Jesus, and we'll see the kingdom and all will be made right. And Lord, we pray for us as a people that we would learn to come to you in confident prayer, to intercede for others, and to bring our burdens and our cares and our concerns and our fears and our dreams and our hopes and our sins to you. And Lord, thank you that you are good and your heart is a father's heart. And as your kids, you never grow weary of doing good for us in Jesus' name. Amen.